Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 6? Start our reading this morning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We ask now that you will work in our hearts through it and that we will know you as you, as you open our eyes and our hearts by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it that we need to put on armor? The text clearly says that it's not a physical conflict. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't run out into the field here behind the church and have a, uh, a big line that we form and then out of the woods comes an enemy and we all you know, paint on our brave heart paint and go running at it, right? No, it isn't that way at all. Our adversaries are spiritual. And it's difficult because while they're unseen and while they clearly have power and rule in their domain, in their realm, we have a hard time acknowledging the reality of them. We have a hard time because they're not physical. They're not like this microphone stand. They are spiritual forces. Are you laughing because that microphone stand now isn't very strong? Okay. Or about that $300,000 microphone? <laughs> oh, you have little faith. It's interesting because we have a hard time. I think, it's, I think it's very connected to our age as well. It may not be in all cases. But you know, knowing that there are spiritual forces that exist that oppose us is something that a person who has been a Christian for many decades has a lot of experience with. 
where a person who's been a Christian for just maybe a short time might not have much experience with it. And so as I've lived for decades knowing God and knowing his truth and knowing what the world presents to me constantly, I have learned to be wary. So things are presented and I just don't assume it's automatically true. I'm wary. But I think for a lot of us, we're not, we're not yet practiced in that reality. We're not yet practiced in the reality that we're at war. And then for some of us, there's the further problem, the further complication, that we haven't even come to the place to realize that we're at war. We're, we're, uh, we're ignorant of the fact that something's going on and that there is this conflict, this clash that's going on around us that we're a part of. But there are adversaries. They're spiritual, they're real, they're unseen. And God has provided the proper equipment for us to participate in the battle, in the struggle. It's not physical armor. But before we look into that more, I want to have our minds and our thoughts oriented to the reality of the struggle so that we know what we're looking at. I don't have a, a big lofty point in this sermon. I have one very basic point that I want us to understand. And so in order for us to get to understanding that one basic point, we have to see the very basic kinds of principles that surround us, okay? And for some, this may be repetitive or it may be, uh, uh, what, refresher. We all need a refresher. And for others, maybe this will be the time when your eyes will open to some of these things for the first time. So we need an orientation. When I went to college, or when I start a new job, I'll say when, you, when I went to college, you might have done this when you started a new job, you had an orientation time, right? Have you ever had an orientation time? Well, when I went to college, we had an orientation time, and they, they took us and they introduced us to the campus. There's a map of the campus. It wasn't very big. It wasn't as big as IU. And they showed us the buildings. Now, these, these are the classroom buildings, and, and these are the dormitories, and this is where you're allowed to go, and these things, you gotta stay away from this area, this is the physical plant, uh, here's the cafeteria, here's the chapel, here's the science building. Then they introduced us to professors and teachers. These are the people that'll be teaching you. This is your faculty advisor, you got to meet that kind of person. And then they introduced us to the, the class syllabi, the, to tell us what we're gonna have to read and all the books that we have to read and what we have to do. And then what? we understood something. What did we understand? We understood the new normal. Do you follow me? You go to some place to live at a school, or you go to some job to take up an occupation, you're starting something new, and there's a new normal that attends it. This is not what your old life was like. Now it's gonna be like this. You're gonna arrive at work at this time in the day, and then you're gonna to proceed to do these things. This is the new normal. And you can't leave until those things are done. And you better do them well, right? So what, are we, what do we need to be oriented to here in Ephesians? We need to be oriented to the struggle, the conflict. It's the new normal for a Christian, or the old new normal, since it doesn't stop, right? 
It continues. And this conflict is between the kingdom of heaven and the spiritual usurping forces of wickedness. And so on the one hand, you have God, the eternal Father, the creator of all things, the one who never was not. He has always been. He's self-existent. He has created all things, and all things have come from him. And 1 John 1.5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So this eternal Father is completely holy, and he dwells, the Bible says, in unapproachable light. This is the God who made us. No sin, no darkness, no shadow. And on the other hand, you have the devil, who is a creature, who is a usurper, who, who sought to take something that was not his. And as the, as the scripture that we read says that we struggle against him who is not flesh and blood, but a ruler, a power, a world force of this darkness, a spiritual force of wickedness. Literally, the one line means the world ruler of this darkness. That's what it means. The world ruler of this darkness. And that is Satan. That is our chief adversary. He is the one who hates God. He hates everything and everyone that God is represented by. So he hates God's law, he hates God's truth, he hates God's character, he hates God's people, he hates anyone who will testify to the truth about God. And his entire goal is to destroy them. But he himself has been fatally knocked out of the game, right? Fatally knocked out in that at a battle in heaven he was thrown down and he deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. He was overcome. But he lives and exists now in this in-between time where he just wants to destroy everything he possibly can destroy. It all started in Genesis at the fall. It all started with Satan, the serpent, in the garden, who tempts the woman and who says, did God really say this? And then he goes on and he says, you will not surely die, you'll be like God. And his, his temptations bear fruit. She takes and eats, she's deceived. She offers to her husband, he's not deceived, he just does something he knows he's not supposed to do. He just sins and blatantly disobeys God. And so sin comes into the world and death. And this was the first battle, the beginning of the fight, and it's fought over the apex of God's creation. It's fought over man, man who was made to rule everything else, man who was made in God's image. And that's exactly where Satan takes his first assault because he knows that's where it has to be. So Satan lies and man sins. Lies are the first weapon and they're the primary weapon in this battle, in this conflict. Satan desires nothing more than to destroy man, lashing out at those who bear God's image, seeking to drag them with him into judgment and hell's wrath. First Peter 5.8 says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, of course, 
Again here we have something physical describing something spiritual. The devil does not literally eat people. Only in Dante's Inferno, have you ever read Dante's Inferno? You know, the lowest level of hell, Dante describes the devil eating three people, the worst sinners, right? But that's not what this is talking about. No, Satan is not literally devouring people, and that's not what's going to happen in hell. In hell, just as an aside, Satan will be no power. He will be receiving the justice and wrath of God, just as all who would follow him there will receive. God is the one we should fear, not Satan. Okay, that's an aside. Don't ever forget that. No, he devours by securing them toward hell through his schemes. That's how he devours. He seeks to destroy everyone. And everyone is secured under his influence unless and until they are set free by the deliverance of Jesus Christ, by the work that God has provided through faith. And so Romans says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so what does it say? It says that God has provided a way for men to be delivered from the, the, uh, the death that came through sin, to be delivered from the dominion of wickedness and evil and Satan. He has provided a way for men to be delivered, but that, that that deliverance comes through something objective, through an objective teaching, through truth. There's an embodiment of truth that is, that is presented to men where they can hear, really hear, and they can believe, and they can call on God's name and be saved. And we must believe him. We must believe in God. Again, this is such a, a foundational thing, but I want you to see in the, in the reality of standing firm, as it talks about in Ephesians, we have to understand very foundational things and remind ourselves that we have to be in God and approach God in a certain way. And so Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We must believe that God is and that he will reward those who seek him faith. It is what God has provided to us through Jesus Christ, deliverance from sin, deliverance from judgment. And what is the reward that he gives us? Well, the reward is his righteousness, his deliverance, his love, his benediction, his presence, his son, his truth, his eternity, himself. He is our reward. We are, we are the recipients of God as our Father. We become his children. 
Now, with all of that truth and that embodiment of truth, we have to see that there's a great spiritual battle going on around us. And this is often hard to see. It's hard to see for people who have seen it for many years because we get distracted. You know, uh, we've got to plant our garden. The car broke down. I've got to get this thing finished. You can get distracted at what are godly looking things, you know. Jody's got to finish the psalm project. And it can be a distraction from him seeing the reality if he's not careful. And so we have distractions, and it keeps us from seeing. And I thought, well, what am I going to talk about to help us all to kind of orient to the distractions? And I thought, well, let's talk about the Ten Commandments because they're pretty basic, right? So where do we see God's law being thwarted? Where do we see ourselves being tempted to thwart God's law? Well, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first two have to do with God's being the only God and not allowing any idols. And so, okay, uh, barring the Chinese restaurant down the street where they have the Buddha up there with the little bowl of rice, do you know of any other little statues? There are some around town from time to time, actual statues. But our idols are more sophisticated than that, aren't they? You know, we recently went through... um, uh, all this talk about the launch of the new Star Wars movie, right? And as the movie was launched, we had a lot of discussions about realities in which the movie was opposed to God. And there are lots of ways in which the movie is opposed to God, right? But you know what bothers me most about these kinds of things? First thing that bothers me about concerts and movies is how the, how the herd runs at them. That's the thing that bothers me more than anything else. And so the first weekend that the Star Wars movie came out, how much money did they garner? Does anybody know? Half a billion dollars. That was the first weekend. How many people did it take to go to that movie to get a half a billion dollars in two days or two and a half days or whatever they count as the weekend? And then I saw an interview of a woman and she was distressed, and I think she needed, uh, she needed uh, counseling. Because when she went to the premiere of the movie at 2 o'clock in the morning, the projector broke. And she said, she's just like almost in tears. I'll never get this moment back, she said. Do we have idolatry? Do we have false gods? We don't even have to talk about Prince, do we? We have lots of false gods. How about using the Lord's name in vain? Do you still have any instrument in your head and in your ear for hearing people use the Lord's name in vain? I hear our children use his name in vain. I hear some of you use his name in vain. I allow it to happen. It's happening all around us. God's name is used in vain. And what does he say in the Ten Commandments about his name? He says, I will not let those who use my name in vain go unpunished. That's a pretty serious statement. 
how about the Sabbath? We were visiting friends in Wisconsin over the weekend um, after the, the wedding of uh, Jay Sparks and went to uh, get up in the morning, sitting around the table, Sunday morning, and uh, I don't know if the doorbell rang, but suddenly the hostess said, there's the post office delivering something. Why are they delivering something on Sunday? And probably most all of you know that the Postal Service has decided that they will do Sunday package deliveries now. And so I have friends who say, well, I'm not going to order things on Thursday because then they're going to get delivered on Sunday. But the reality is you can't always guarantee they're not going to get delivered on Sunday. I suppose you could put up a sign on your door, don't leave any packages today, you know. Sundays have not been kept for worship and for knowing and participating in the means of grace. They have been given over to every kind of distraction and the continuation of every form of work and labor so that our actions, our worship, our devotion to God on Sunday keep getting encroached and encroached and encroached and encroached upon and the space gets smaller and smaller and smaller. How about honoring our father and mother? Of course, as a placeholder for all submission to authority. Oh, we're doing okay on that one. Let's just go on. How about murder? I think maybe, I think maybe the murder capital of the world now might be Facebook. I really do. I see so much murder if I go on Facebook and, you know, I go on there and it, it's like, I don't have very many friends. Why are you laughing, Lucas? I go on there and I can see murders every day. The same is true of lying on Facebook. Lies, 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 lies. Lies, lies, lies. How about theft? Well, we're all very conscious of theft during tax season, I know. So that's probably at a low right now. How about adultery? We were driving back from Wisconsin. I'm driving in the car, and after we'd gone through all the toll booths around Chicago, Annie decided to take a nap. I'm glad she wasn't driving. She took the nap. I'm driving, and I'm thinking, I've got to stay awake. So I turned on the radio, and I tuned into some country music. And you know how, how good and godly country music is. They sing the hymns, don't they, on the country stations? So I listen to the country music, and I really try, I want to hear the words, you know, what they're saying, just so I can know, is this good? or not. That's another thing that happens when you get older. You start listening to the words of the songs, and then you start saying, I never knew that's what that said. Okay? But listen, young people, make it your business to know what it says. This is what standing firm is. Make it your business. So I'm listening to the songs, and of course it's the normal country kind of fare. Um, Warm summer, warm summer evenings and tailgates of pickup trucks and blue jeans and love and love and love and love and pain, right? 
And I thought about the substance of the songs, and they were pretty much all lies. I'm old enough to see the persons singing were singing about something they didn't, they, they presented that they knew something about love, but really all they presented was lust. Over and over and over again, lust and lust. How about covetousness? <laughs> hey, this is an election year. Are you going to get asked to covet something somebody else has during this year at some point? No, Brian says no. So here we have the Ten Commandments, and we realize that they're constantly being broken around us every day, and we are constantly being enticed, invited to participate. This is the battle. This is the onslaught that's against us, constantly against us. And the, the text says that the devil has schemes and that his primary scheme, as we'll see in a minute, is lies. So in John chapter 8, starting at verse 30, Jesus spoke things to these Jews that were there with him, and many came to believe in, the text says. And in verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you continue, something will come on you. You will understand. Your mind will be renewed by my revelation of my Father to you. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so these people who had just believed in him said what? We've never been slaves. We've never been enslaved to slavery to anything. We are children of Abraham. We've never been in slaves, been in slavery. And Jesus says, well, look, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Hey, Jews, buddies, as he's standing there, everybody who commits sin, that is you, is a slave to sin. Well, then they got angry. We weren't, we're not slaves to sin. We weren't born in fornication. We're slaves. We are children of Abraham. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God, and he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You're deaf. Something's going on all around you all the time and you're not listening because you can't hear it, you're deaf. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus had been telling them all about who God was. And he's revealing God's character to them. And he's saying, you must abide in me and you'll know the truth. And the truth will make you free. You'll know who God is. You'll know who you are. You'll know who I am. You'll know what you need to do. And you'll be in the truth and the truth will make you free. 
And they say, no, 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 we're not slaves. And he says, you're sinners. Just like your father, the devil. Then he starts telling them who the devil is, that he's a liar. The devil is over here because the devil can't stand in the truth. That's what it says in the text. He was a murderer. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. This is why the armor of God is our safety. This is why the presence of God is our safety. This is why the truth will make you free because when you stand in the truth, Satan can't touch you. He doesn't go there. You understand? He doesn't go there. He's a liar and he doesn't stand in the truth. So Jesus reveals God's character. He reveals their character. He reveals the character of Satan. And these people who at the beginning of the chapter are saying, we believe in you, at the end of the chapter, what are they doing? They're picking up stones off the ground to stone him. Just, just a few words, just a, a short bit of time, and they want to kill him. What happened? Well, Jesus introduced them to the truth about themselves. They were slaves who thought they were free. And every time you and I feel uncomfortable, it's at that place in our lives when we realize we have some connection to Satan and we think we're free, but we realize, nope, I still have a tether there. And we become very uncomfortable, we don't like it. We don't like that exposure of our sin. There are only two possible places to stand with Christ in the truth of God and with the devil in lies. And if we're going to stand there, we must take on the armor of God so that we can have the weapons to, to face the struggle. And the first weapon or the first bit of armor that it talks about is that our loins are girded with truth. It's interesting that when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered their loins with leaves that they wove together. Remember that? And what were they doing? Well, they were, they were uh, covering their loins because they suddenly had knowledge of the wrongness of their actions. They had submitted themselves to a lie and they knew shame. They were naked. That was the nature of their nakedness, that they knew shame. And so they tried to cover it. And so here we're instructed in Ephesians to gird our loins with the truth and that's interesting to me. It's just interesting to me. That at that very place where Adam and Eve had to cover their shame, we're supposed to put truth around us. And, and why? Well, because what can Satan do when he assaults our shame? What's he gonna do? We now live in the truth of Jesus Christ. Is he going to assault us at our shame? Well, he can bring it up to us, but we can say, well, you know something? I'm clothed in Christ. I live in the truth. And I live in Christ as one who is the recipient of the righteousness of Christ. Guess what? Jesus Christ didn't have to cover up anything. He had nothing to be ashamed of. And so you can't, you can't get at my shame. You can't get at me through that temptation. You can't get at me through that accusation because I'm in Christ. And so we're to take 
we're supposed to gird our loins with truth and we're supposed to take the breastplate of righteousness and our feet are to be shod with the preparation of gospel of peace. And the shield of faith is our shield so that we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. We're supposed to have the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And again, all of these things are not physical. They are spiritual and they are brought to us by the revelation of God and the application of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Romans says we're, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We didn't know, now we know. Stephen was talking about the, the natives that the missionaries would speak to, and it was very clear the ones who didn't know, and then they knew, right? And suddenly, all these realities of the conflict became real to them, and their dependence on God became real. spiritual armor, spiritual weapons to deal with spiritual opposition. But that opposition comes to us in every form of temptation in the world around us. And so one of the big ones this week that everybody's talking about is Target. How many people talked about Target this week? Anybody? Okay, anybody ever shop at Target? Got a few more. All right, so Target is the source of a lot of discussion because of their new bathroom policy, right? And this morning, I want you to know that this is, a, this is a reality of discussion in my family. My wife loves two stores, Target and Cracker Barrel, okay? And we all think we can claim the high ground in the question, so we... I'm going to snooker you, so watch out. We all claim that we can claim the high ground in this, in this debate. And so we say to one another, well, we have to boycott Target because Target is so big we have to win. This is a, this is a uh, history-setting moment. And another group of us says, look, um, we've already lost the department stores. And so we just, need to, we just need to realize we've lost the department stores and boycotting Target's not going to make a big difference. And there are all kinds of variations of all that in between. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Lots of variations. But consider for a second, to my point, many people who have signed up to boycott Target aren't doing so because they live in the light of God's truth. They're doing so because they're hoping to stem the tide of discomfort surrounding the death of the American dream. Now, I'm not saying everybody, I'm just saying, consider, for the sake of the point I'm trying to make, that some people may be signing the petition not because they're living and standing firm in the truth of God and the, in the armor of the Holy Spirit, but because they just don't want to be uncomfortable and they feel like their dream store is a place of, you know. Then there's another group of people who say, well, I'm not going to sign the partition, and it's not because they're standing in and I shouldn't be standing over here when I say it. I'm not going to sign the petition, and it's not petition, and it's not because they're standing in the truth and standing firm against it, but because they just don't want to give up shopping at Target, which is an inconvenience to them. Right? I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I have more to say about it. It's not an unimportant question. Go ahead and have your fight with your wife or whoever. <laughs> 
right? But be nice and improve one another. That's not my point this morning. My point is that in asking those questions, the question of whether or not you should shop at Target, I think we're actually focusing on the wrong thing. We're not focusing on something foundational enough for this sermon, okay? What is the right question? Well, if you think about it, if no restroom in Bloomington was defiled by this corruption, could you still stand firm in the light of God against the schemes of the devil? Could you still stand firm if there were no restrooms that were generic? Behind that question is, are you standing in there now? You understand. And, and, and what if, did I ask first if, you, if there were no restroom? Now what if every public restroom in Bloomington was generic? Every single one. Could you still stand firm in the, in the, the armor of God and the light of the Holy Spirit and, and resist if everyone was corrupted? And again, behind the question is, are you standing there now? That's the question. That's the important question. Some of us never want to ask questions about our thoughts, our words, our pastimes, our friends, our actions, our taxes, our music, our movies, our dances, our dates, our politicians, education, on and on and on. We don't want to ask questions about the Ten Commandments application to our lives. We don't want to ask any questions about anything. We don't want to turn on the radio and think about the words to the country music song that's playing at the time. And that is the point. The point is that we're commanded to stand firm. And I fear that that's not what we're doing, many of us, in our posture. That we're not awake in many ways. Some of us only wake up enough to see when there's a partition to sign. And not at the 10,000 points of conflict that have hit us in the last day. Where we should have been faithful and steadied in our obedience to God, standing firm and we weren't. And we're blind. And like those Jews that Jesus was talking to or who were appealing to Abraham, we appeal to the fact that we attend church, that we appeal to the fact that we mow the lawn, we do childcare, we make coffee, we tithe. One of our relatives is an officer. We make all of these appeals. But we don't have that, lib- we don't have that luxury. Are we slaves who think we're free? That's the question. Are we slaves who think we think we're free? When we go through our day, do we see ourselves at war? Do we harmonize with the lies around us and sing a nice harmony to them? Or are we a dissonant voice? And as they come to this, do they find opposition? I want to close by reading some points from J.C. Ryle in a chapter he wrote on the cost of being a disciple. And it's, I'm going to read several paragraphs 
I'm skipping some, however, to point to the paragraphs that are, I think, most applicable to what I've been preaching about. As he talks about the cost of discipleship, he says, I grant freely that it costs little to be a mere outward Christian. A man has only got to attend a place of worship twice on Sunday and to be tolerably moral during the week. And he has gone as far as thousands around him ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It entails no self-denial or self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity and will take us to heaven when we die, we must alter the description of the way of life and write, quote, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to heaven, unquote. But it does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be won. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it cost much to win the victory. Hence arises the unspeakable importance of counting the cost. And so he gives four ways that we have to count the cost. The first two, I'm just going to read you the way and not the description. The last two are more applicable, but I, I would hope that you could all find this called Counting the Cost by our, uh, J.C. Ryle. The first for one thing, it will cost him his self-righteousness. And then he describes how a man cannot go to God and be a disciple of Christ and be self-righteous. And the second is, for another thing, it will cost him his sins. And he describes how a man cannot go and, and live his life continually uh, cherishing sins and never bringing them to God and just overlooking them. And number three it will cost him his love of ease. And this is where I take up the reading. It will cost him his love of ease. He must take pains and trouble if he means to run a successful race towards heaven. He must daily watch and stand on his guard like a soldier on enemy's ground. He must take heed to his behavior every hour of the day, in every company, and in every place, in public as well as in private, among strangers as well as at home. He must be careful over his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imagination, his motives, his conduct, in every relation of life. He must be diligent about his prayers, his Bible reading, his use of Sundays with all their means of grace. In attending to these things, he may come far short of perfection, but there is none of them he can safely neglect. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat, Proverbs 13, 4. This also sounds hard. There is nothing we naturally dislike so much as trouble about our religion. We hate trouble. We secretly wish we could have a vicarious Christianity and could, and could be good by proxy and have everything done for us. Anything that requires exertion and labor is entirely against the grain of our hearts. But the soul can have no gains without pains. To be a Christian, it will cost a man his love of ease. And fourth, it will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, 
ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices in religion despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to be thought by many a fool, an enthusiast, and a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, he must not marvel if some call him mad. The master says, quote, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. I dare say this also sounds hard. We naturally dislike unjust dealing and false charges and think it very hard to be accused without cause. We should not be flesh and blood if we did not wish to, be, to have the good opinion of our neighbors. It is always unpleasant to be spoken against and forsaken and lied about and to stand alone. But there is no hope for it. The cup which our master drank must be drunk by his disciples. They must be despised and rejected of men. Let us set down that item last in our account. To be a Christian, it will cost a man the favor of the world. I grant it costs much to be a true Christian, but who in his sound senses can doubt that it is worth any cost to have our soul saved? When the ship is in danger of sinking, the crew think nothing of casting overboard the precious cargo. When a limb is mortified, a man will submit to any severe operation and even to amputation to save life. Surely a Christian should be willing to give up anything which stands between him and heaven. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a a useless Christianity without a crown. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning realizing that for many of us, we're weary of fighting. Many of us are distracted by the world. Many of us are only beginning to see the reality of the struggle that we have to be a part of and only beginning to see the joy that's set before us in that you have provided protection for us in your life. Help us, O Lord. Forgive us our sins. Cause us to look in faith to Christ, most especially now, Father, as we have before us the meal that you've provided. As we remember Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, give us faith to meet this meal and through it to receive your grace. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us in Jesus, we pray. Amen.